If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnutt, and with me today is Carolyn Lowe. And we're going to be discussing the do's and absolute don'ts of building a business on Amazon. So Carolyn joins me from ROI Swift, where she is the CEO and co-founder. And it's also important to note that Carolyn is the author, congratulations, Carolyn, of the book, Business Growth, Do's and Absolute Don'ts. Guess where I got today's title from? Applied Wisdom from My Work with Dell, Costco, Amazon, and Multiple Startups. Welcome to the podcast, Carolyn. Thank you for having me, Scott. No problem at all. So we're going to go into lots of Amazon-related content today relating to business growth, aspects of marketing on Amazon, and of course, the do's and don'ts and things to do and things to avoid. But before we get into all of that, could you share a little bit more about your role at ROI Swift? Sure. So I have to go back a little bit to to talk about how ROI Swift came to be. Um, in 1999, I was living in Boston, Massachusetts and had been doing marketing. And this was when Think back to 1999, there were no iPhones, there were no tablets, um, and Dell recruited me to come down and help run their consumer marketing division. So I did that in 1999, was with Dell for six years, really fun, grew it from you know number six in market share behind a company called Gateway that's now out of business, all the way to number one with a, with a terrific team of marketers. And then once we got to be an $8 billion division, it, it just wasn't as fun anymore. So I really liked when we were small and, and we were emerging and, and not many folks knew about us. So sort of fast forward, I had two children after I left Dell and did some consulting. And then when I got ready to go back to work, I said, okay, my kids are in you know, elementary school now. And so I'm ready to go back to work. And I went back to work for a small mom and baby company. And they were a, um, you know, $3 million company at the time, and then helped them quadruple and and more. And then they got acquired by Reckitt Benkiser, uh, based out of the UK, of course. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I really found my passion. And a year after that, I said, I would love to do this for lots of other brands because these smaller brands can't afford expert help. But um, so they sort of have to take what they can afford. And and that didn't seem fair to me. So I started ROI Swift about six years ago to help level the playing field for emerging brands. 
That's a perfect transition into where I wanted to start. So I have a couple of curiosities that I want to explore before we even get into Amazon and the do's and don'ts. And the first, I've got a note in front of me to say that I think I took this from your website. I can't remember exactly where I took this from, but um, it's in terms of ROI Swift and quote, our goal is to help 1,000 emerging brands succeed because we want to make entrepreneurs realize their dreams, bring more new ideas into the world and give consumers more choices, which I thought was a, a great mission statement, great intent. And I'm just curious, I hear about emerging brands and as marketers on this podcast and my peers, we talk about the excitement about wanting to work with an emerging brand. But I wanted to dig a little bit deeper, break down what emerging means to you. So at ROI Swift, how do you determine the criteria for an emerging brand? Great question, Scott. So we we can really help those the most that are in the three to 30 million in annual revenue, sometimes down as little as two, usually below two million, especially if they're bootstraps, they don't have the cash to, to grow. But if most folks, if they've got institutional money and, and they've got a solid product, um, that's what we would call emerging. We usually call them startups until they get to seven figures. And usually between there and 30 million is where they don't, you know, they can't afford a $250,000 a year Facebook expert or a, you know, $200,000 a year Google expert. So, you know, they can work with someone like us for $50,000 a year and get, get those expertise without the, you know, 5X, the headcount and benefits. And so we're, it's a really good model. We, we consider ourselves successful when we get fired because they, hire someone in-house. That's our goal mm. is to grow them big enough that they can afford full-time headcount to replace us. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that probably feels counterintuitive to a lot of marketers, particularly agency marketers. I'm speaking from experience when I say this is that I've always been very comfortable myself with what you've said. Sometimes I believe it to be a legitimate marketing goal. So outside of the bottom line of revenue or leads or whatever it is we're discussing on a day-to-day basis, I believe it to be a legitimate marketing goal to get a business to a point where they can in-house their marketing. I just think that's a stage of the type of company that you've just described there. So it's really refreshing to hear someone say that and actually to say, no, it's our goal to make ourselves redundant. I am interested though on that journey because that is a unique position to be in. You don't hear that. I don't hear that every day. So what are some of the pros and cons of that approach for you? And maybe if you could try to break down for me some of the considerations that you keep in mind when working with emerging brands of that size. So what do you have to be sensitive to when working with emerging brands? Everything, Scott, right? <laughs> Everything. Oh, as you said, you know, we, we it's COVID. Lots of people are working from mm-hmm. home. You know, you're, you're talking with the CEO and their, their two-year-old is crawling on top of them or, you know, they're out in a field. And so... You know, one of the things that, and I'll tell you, I'm going to be a hundred percent honest with you, Scott. If I had this to do over, I would not start an agency. <laughs> <laughs> um, because as you know, we help all these companies and then they outgrow us, which is what we want. That's what we consider success. But for yeah. us, there's tons of top of funnel, right? We're always trying to fill that funnel. You know, we've helped like 180 companies and we've got 800 more to go until we reach our goal. And so I've got some job security, but I think the biggest challenge is 
you know, when I was at Dell, we worked with big, huge, huge, huge agencies, WPP. And what I never liked about that was that we would get the 22 year old just out of college. You know, you would get the A team, but then the B team would do the work, right? The A team would come to the the pitch meeting and the closing. And, and that just didn't feel right to me, right? I didn't feel like you should be, you know, paying for the A team and getting the B team. But for us, I think the biggest challenge is that um, it's constantly finding those new brands that we can help as we, you know, we got one brand to doing, they were doing a million dollars a month in Facebook reported revenue. So they were doing 12 million a year just on Facebook and Instagram sales from ads. Mm. So that's probably like, hmm, maybe we should put a full-time person at that. So I think for us, we, we, we don't, we sort of break even at, at the low end when we take someone on and they're only spending, you know, $10,000 a month on ads. And then we get them to profitability and they're great and they're paying us rates that we can pay our team and then they leave. So that's the mm. biggest challenge for us having this, you know, much more passion-based goal. It works out great for our clients, but it, it's definitely a lot of constantly filling the funnel for us. Uh, well, I appreciate that openness and sharing that because, again, as I said, it's kind of a little bit unusual that I hear that as a goal. And so I'd assume kind of what you've just said there in that there are some definite pros and particularly from an emotional and job satisfaction standpoint, it must be particularly exciting to work with brands and um, see their success and see them get to the point where they're in-house and that you become redundant. But that doesn't escape the reality of then that they become very difficult to replace. It's true. And I'll tell you, we t- we talked a little bit about this and I don't know if you're seeing this as well, but in other agencies in terms of hiring. So we're in Austin, mm-hmm. Texas. And so we're competing for talent with Google, Facebook, Amazon, Tesla. So we don't have the big budgets of those big companies, but mm-hmm. what the, the passion for what we do and helping others in that sense of accomplishment is how we get great talent. We can offer them a lot of the, the things that others can offer in those big corporations, but we can offer them a seat at the table. And that's something you can't get at a big company. So I think especially for smaller brands and smaller agencies, whether you're a brand or an agency, you know, this is my first agency. I've always worked at brands. And it's great to be able to offer that seat at the table. So if you're, if you're a smaller emerging brand, that's your, that's what you can do to get someone away from a a place like a Facebook or a Google is they don't have a seat at the table. They don't have a voice. Mm. And I hadn't planned on asking you this, but we were just discussing before I press record a little bit about Austin, Texas, and I hadn't made this connection till now, but I'm aware that Austin, Texas has become kind of this emerging hub particularly for maybe entrepreneurship and tech. Is that something to do with the state taxes there? Yes, it has to do with that. Uh, definitely, there's some a lot of business incentives to come here. Austin is a very business-friendly city in general, so there's lots of tax incentives for people to come here. And also, there is no state income tax, so it's one of only a handful of states in the United States. Of course, the executives like it because imagine you know you're making you know, $2 million a year and you don't have to pay 6% income tax on top of that. So um, it's very, it's very friendly for business. And there's obviously it's a lot cheaper, not so much anymore, but it's a lot cheaper than places like the Bay Area. And does that mean that when it comes to emerging brands, you see a lot of emerging brands, particularly in maybe that tech and software as a service space start to build their 
We're seeing that, but we're also seeing a ton of terrific consumer brands. And Mm. when I first moved here 20 years ago, it was Dell and IBM and Tivoli. It was three tech companies and, and a small AMD presence, which is now bigger. But I really credit the CPG. There was no CPG. There was no consumer brands really here when I got here. But over the last 10 or so years, the gentleman I co-founded with, his name is Dan Graham, he and others started a, a CPG incubator called SKU, S-K-U. And uh, folks like Clayton Christopher, who started Sweet Leaf Tea. Now, these are U.S. brands. I know yep. you've got a lot of outside the U.S., but started Sweet Leaf Tea, uh, Deep Eddy Vodka, and a bunch of other brands. And so they have really gotten... And we have Whole Foods here headquarters. And so they've really gotten in and helped a lot of these emerging, especially food and beverage brands grow. So we've got that. And we also have Techstars, which is also a tech incubator. And we have Capital Factory, which is another tech incubator. And we've got a couple of really great private equity and venture capital firms here that are specifically focused on those Series A and seed rounds. Mm. So it's really changed the landscape over the last 10 years. That's really interesting that I could record the whole episode on that, but uh, I'm I'm, to, <laughs> I'm having to remind myself here to bring it back to the topic of uh, particularly emerging brands and do's and don'ts of Amazon. But actually, that's quite a nice transition because when it comes to emerging brands and building a business, that really leads me into the core of the episode today, which is Amazon and building a brand on Amazon and building a business and maybe just getting into the differences between what a brand and a business is on Amazon. Which leads me really to my first curiosity. My first question is that, of course, well, I'm an Amazon user. Um, it's part of my daily life. I've spoken a little bit about Amazon and maybe the polarizing nature that Amazon has on society. I've spoken a little bit on the podcast about that and I've opened up and said, well, I'm an Amazon user myself and I can't deny the fact that for convenience, it has really changed my purchasing behavior. But one thing I can't say for sure is that I've seen brands build themselves up on Amazon. So someone that I have kind of a a more emotional connection with, someone that I look from a marketing perspective and say, wow, it's incredible what have they done to build their brand on Amazon. So just that as a starting point. Is it possible for them to build a brand on Amazon as well as a business? Yes, though it's it's much easier to go the other way to build a brand and mm. then sell on Amazon. It's somewhat difficult to build a brand on Amazon, especially five years ago or three years ago even. All you had was you had a listing page and that's all you could do. And slowly Amazon has brought on ways for you to have more of a brand. So things like video in search video on your listings if your brand registered storefronts where you can basically you know create an entire web-like experience with multi-pages on your own Amazon storefront and then these Amazon live which are you know sort of like QVC in the old days I would have to go on QVC and do 8 minute segments and sell laptops when I was working at Dell and um so they've introduced all these things that really do help you tell your brand story but again at the end of the day they own that first party data, not you. And so it's much harder to build a brand than it is to build a business. We've seen it though. We've seen, there's a few of them who have built, I mean, Anchor is one of my favorite. It's the only charger I use there. They were largely an Amazon only built brand, but we see it's a lot better to build your brand off Amazon and then use that as a channel. 
Well, that was going to be one of my questions, actually, in terms of are there any other companies like Anchor that you've seen that just come to mind for you that have managed to escape just being a business and have built their brand on Amazon? Anchor is a really good example, though. They are. There's um. So about five years ago, I was invited by Amazon to headquarters in Seattle with 250 other women. It was the top 250 women sellers on Amazon in the oh, country, and it was fabulous. It was the whole leadership team. It was when they were just starting out with B two B, and they only had 400,000 businesses on Amazon. And so we got access to a lot of the, the great leadership team, and there was a couple of folks that went the Amazon exclusive route. Mm. There was a woman that made a pill necklace and she built a seven figure brand on just on Amazon alone. She mm. did it all through Amazon. And um, I'm forgetting the name of her brand. See, that's why it's not so great. But um, we've successfully done this for a couple of others, like a natural cleaning company was doing small Amazon figures and they were doing, you know, pretty well off Amazon, but you know, we built them to almost an eight-figure brand on Amazon from tens of thousands a month to to eight figures. And so it's definitely possible. And that that's where people do discovery. Obviously, more searches are done on on Amazon now than Google. So it's definitely a place where people are going first. And actually, that's what I was interested in. You just mentioned there about helping to build businesses on Amazon or helping to build brands on Amazon. So I'm interested to know for ROI Swift, at what stage of their company growth, businesses that have been built on Amazon, when do they eventually reach out to you and say, hey, we've kind of really reached our limitations of what we can do on Amazon. Should we continue with Amazon? How can you help us? Can you help us build our brand beyond Amazon? Is there, are there any commonalities in where they're at in their journey, whether that's from a revenue perspective or team size, any commonalities that you see, any trends that you see at the point in which they reach out to you? Yeah, great question. They usually reach out anywhere from zero to $500,000 a month. And so we've got folks and and they're not usually a good fit unless they're doing 40 or 50,000 a month or they have a very searched. So the first thing we'll do when someone calls is we'll see what their branded search volume is. We'll go into our tools and we'll see how much, how many people a month are searching even for their brand name. And if it's, you know, less than a thousand, then it's going to be an uphill battle depending on the category they're in. Most categories are very crowded, hard to rank. You know, they may not be a good fit, but if it's a brand like this natural cleaning brand that had a good it had a good brand name, but you know it was full of resellers or they only had a few products on there, then they're definitely a good fit. Then we have others who are doing 400000 a month, but their listings aren't optimized. So for example, one brand we took from 15% conversion to 30% conversion. And so we've doubled their sales. Amazon is just like your website in terms of the way to get more sales is to either improve your traffic, get more people to your page or your website, or improve your conversion rate. It really comes down to those two levers, right? More people on your site or more of those people on your site buying. I'm interested in the seller fee aspect of this as well, because what I've heard in my experience is, and particularly businesses that have built on Amazon or people that have sold on Amazon, when they come to us as an agency site visibility in the past, it's always because they become uncomfortable with how much revenue they're giving away back in seller fees. That seems to be a trigger that I've experienced in the UK. So I'm just interested from your experience working cross-platform and your understanding of Amazon in comparison to other platforms, how do the seller fees compare? 
know, for anyone listening here that's maybe considering launching a business on Amazon and comparing that to some of the other platforms, let's say eBay, Etsy, I don't know if you've got any US specific platforms like that that maybe you can sell on to, but how do the seller fees compare? Yeah, well, you're paying for those 300 million eyeballs. So Mm -hmm. um, the seller fees are usually not too bad. They're 8 to 17% typically, depending on which category you're in. And so if you sell on your website um, and you say you fulfill it yourself, right? So you can either have Amazon fulfill it or have yourself fulfill it. If you fulfill yourself, you're only paying, you pay a $40 a month selling fee and then you pay only when you sell. So you're paying eight to 17%, but only when you sell. When you sell on your website, you've got to pay for your own advertising and there's not a lot of emerging brands Mm. that I've seen or even bigger brands that can get less than a 17% marketing cost as a percent of revenue. So, um, you know, that's, that's sort of what you're paying for. They, they've got all the eyeballs, um, in terms of the FBA fees, our favorite are small and light. Nothing under $15 is typically very profitable. So Mm. we, we won't work with brands that have a bunch of $8 items. We'll have them, you know, make multi-packs or three packs or things like that to get that price point up because usually the minimum FBA fee is about anywhere from four to $5. So, you know, think about it. If you have a $10 product, you're paying 15% and then you've got to pay $4 in, you know, to get prime and outbound um, shipping, then, you know, there goes all of your profitability and you're left with your cog. So we really encourage people and we try to work with people that are 15 to $20 plus price points. And, you know, my favorite brand was a brand, it made $40 underwear. So it was eight ounces. <laughs> so their fee was 15% at the time. It's now 17% for clothing, but it was 15% at the time. So they were paying $40 They're paying $6 um, in Amazon fees. Plus then they were paying um, $4 in outbound shipping. So they would make $30 Amazon would give them $30 for every $40 pair of underwear they sold. And I think their cogs were in the $6 range. So it's pretty profitable. It's really a matter of, is Amazon right for you? This was a a mom and baby brand. And so mom and baby in the US, they buy on Amazon and Target. So you need to be those two places. Well, that leads me really nicely into the marketing features of Amazon. So thinking about the do's, thinking about why you might want to launch a business on Amazon. Uh, You mentioned there two things. So you mentioned 300 million eyeballs. So maybe that's a reason to be there. And then there are some of these niche, maybe topics or industries where they've just become our go-to. You'll be in conversation with someone and someone will say, hey, where can I find this thing? And it's pretty natural. One of the first places on your list will be Amazon. So just speaking about that and the marketing features, what do you enjoy most just as a marketer, as a business professional about Amazon? What are the marketing features that you think this just makes life so much easier and I can really target specific audiences using these features? Yes. So I think the, um, it's, it's always this great, we, we constantly do testing, tweaking, optimizing. And so, I love some of the features they've rolled out over the past three years. So when I first started selling on Amazon, it was, I don't know, six years ago. And uh, there was no video. Mm. There was no testing. Mm. There was no storefronts. You know, they had storefronts, but you had to be selling direct to Amazon and mm. they were very basic. So 
a lot of those features I love as a marketer. You'd be so surprised. And I was even on a a panel yesterday for websites and you'd be surprised how little people look at their own stuff on their mobile device. Now Amazon is more than, you know, more than two thirds mobile. So the fact that you're sitting at your desktop looking at your Amazon listings or your website on your desktop, well, you're in the minority. And so we did this yesterday with a bicycle brand and they were blown away by what they saw on mobile. And I always say, have 10 friends go try to find your product or go through your website and tell them, give them a task, right? The marketing features I love about Amazon is the advertising, you know, versus say like Walmart, it's a black box and it's horrible. Amazon looks like they, stole a bunch of people from Google. So I really love their uh, different advertising platforms. I love how much control you have as well with Amazon Seller Central. Um, I love how you can target specific products. So one of our hacks is that we'll find a product in the same space that has lower reviews and higher cost, and we'll advertise on that page for that product. Because if you see a product that's $25 with three stars, or you also see a product on that page that's, you know, $20 with five stars, which one are you going to buy? Right. Um, so we, we, I love that. And then also the AB testing. We've done some incredible main image testing, title testing, and the results. It's just like when you do email testing, right? I did email testing for another brand on, uh, Clavio and I increased their revenue and, purchase rate by double just by changing how quickly they were sending the email. So I love the testing, tweaking, optimizing, and the scale that you can do it on at Amazon that you can't do on your website. And as a bit of an expansion of this, just thinking about listings. So what makes a killer or an ultimate listing for you? Yes. Well, if I do that, I'll give away our entire IP and I will <laughs> not be able to some, help any more friends. some but things. I, but I'll give you some, some good tips. So yeah. When you go to a page, you want to see title that's at least 150 characters. We have this access to this incredible AI tool that someone has built here in Austin. And they know that black ampersand white gets clicked on 34% of the time versus black and white gets clicked on 24% of the time. So this is the kind of amazing data that, um, that we've got access to, which is incredible. So first of all, you want to make sure you have most important words in, in your first, you know, seven words of your product description. Um, you can add all the other stuff at the end, but what they're going to see is usually, you know, those first seven to 10 words. And then you want to make sure that you have six great images and a product video and people get overwhelmed by product videos mm -hmm. and like, Oh my gosh, we don't have a videographer. It's going to cost us thousands of dollars. So that's one of the things that we've seen work really well. And people will have six images sometime, but they won't be the right six images to convert. So when someone on boards, we give them our killer listing playbook. And it basically says, this is everything you need to go. These are the six images you need to go make. And they don't have to be photography. They can be graphics, but with text, you mm. know, so there's certain things that you really need to convert on your listing. And so then we just recently started offering this $400 a month video service and it's been great for our clients that don't have in-house creative or they're daunted by, my gosh, how do I go and get a product video made? And then sometimes they go and make it and it's not what we need to convert. So those, those are the biggest things, obviously your bullets and your keywords, and then filling in all those backend keywords as well in all those backend fields that really help you rank. 
And then a lot of times we see if people are brand registered, either they don't have A-plus content or their A-plus content uses those little text boxes that Amazon serves you up that look horrible on mobile. So we have a whole killer listing playbook that is part of our onboarding process. But those are some things. We did this with a, a beauty brand that we couldn't take on. And they uh, they also doubled their conversion rate by just changing their images to those six images that I gave them in our playbook. Mm. And I'm glad you mentioned videos as you were talking there. I was thinking about myself more from a through a consumer lens. So product videos aren't new for marketers or business people listening to this podcast. They've been around a very long time now. But as a consumer, I never really looked for product videos on Amazon. I don't know why. I just felt like it took maybe Amazon a while to catch up and maybe for them to add that functionality. And maybe it's just my behavior as a user. When I go to Amazon, maybe it's because I know what I'm looking for. I don't typically look out for the product videos as much. But I have noticed that start to change over the last couple of years. And what I'm interested to know is for you to launch this service, I think it's fair for me to assume that you've seen the conversion rate impact of introducing listings with videos as opposed to those without. So they make a big difference, do they? They do. And especially we'll use that same video in search results. And that's where we're seeing a a big impact. So, you know, when, when you do a sponsored ad, it just means you're your product shows up higher than it would organically, right? right? So you're looking for an AirPods case and, you know, there's, say there would normally be 30 on the page. Well, you pay to show up on that page and it's your listing and you may not have as many stars and you're not as established. So all, all people have to go on is the picture. But once they introduced video and search a couple of years ago, well, now you get to tell your story right there in search results and people will click on it. And so we're seeing a lot of great success with sponsored video rather than just in the sponsored products, rather than just showing your product statically because you only get one little image. Um, We're seeing great results with sponsored videos. And then this question is both starting with the do's and then leading into the don'ts. It's reviews. So you talked there a little bit about product listings. We've spoken about videos, but of course, reviews, I think we can all assume are important to your conversion rate, to your business on Amazon. But just starting with the do's, how can you acquire reviews on Amazon without violating their terms of service? And then maybe that will lead naturally into the absolute don'ts about tactics to avoid in terms of getting reviews as well. Um, We are 100% white hat. We don't do anything that's um, even potentially bad. Um, I was out in Seattle. We we have an account rep at Amazon obviously before COVID. And I was out there with them and this was a, you know, this was a decent sized brand, 7 million, eight, I mean, for us, it was a seven, $8 million brand on Amazon. They also had off Amazon sales and they actually even got a slap on the wrist because you can send one email and you have to write it objectively. So you have to write it as if you don't care if they leave you a good review or a bad review. So this was pretty objective. You could We could do an HTML email. It was a picture of the founder with her child. And um, while we were in Seattle, they actually told us that we needed to change it. So what they did was they said, you can't say, hey, if you love this product, we it would be terrific if you would help out other parents and leave a review. 
If you didn't love it, just respond to this email. We'd love to make it right. So they took objection with that and they almost shut down this massive brand and I had to uh, sort of beg and borrow. So now we, 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 you can still use a review service, but you have to have very generic language. In terms of practices to avoid that you've seen in the wild, again, just thinking about our listeners, whether they're consumers on Amazon or whether they're planning on selling on Amazon, what are the definite things to avoid that you've seen? Um, apart from maybe the impartiality there, for example, I've received slips in my Amazon package to say, please give us a, a review within 30 days and we'll extend your warranty by one year or something. Is that allowed? Absolutely not. Right. So um, <laughs> at any compensation of any form for reviews is mm. against terms of service. So right. we see that a lot um, and you'll get those and they'll put them in the box. And mm. so, you know, Amazon won't see it when they're shipping out, but when the customer opens it, I've gotten those in actually some of my anchor shipments for my right. cords and cables. Um, but yes, you absolutely can't incent. The other thing that we've seen, we, we had a brand come to us. They were doing $10 million a month on Amazon and they got suspended for review manipulation. And what had happened was they gave out a bunch of, a bunch of their product to influencers and one of them liked it so much. She went on Amazon and wrote, I got this product for free. This is the best thing I've ever had. I can't believe I've, you know, I've lived without this for so long. And of course, if, you know, that triggered the, I got this product for free and they wrote a review. So that's, you know, review manipulation and, and they got shut down. They had gone through four agencies to try to get reinstated. And we finally got them reinstated, like back in the good old days when Jeff at amazon.com worked. Yeah. I would just email Jeff Bezos, Jeff at amazon.com was his email address. So, um, we used to be able to get those suspensions reinstated. Review manipulations is a pretty easy one to get reinstated, but right. we just tell folks don't do it. Mm. So you can do promos and you can do discounts. And one thing we like to do, there's also a whole bunch of black hat where there's, you can send out to Facebook messenger or, you know, viral, viral jump and, and these other ones. But really your best bet is if you have any customers on your internal database, we always did this whenever we launched a mom and baby product, we would do a promo code and send them like an early adopter, 30% off to juice sales. And those people tended to do reviews because um, one, they were already familiar with the brand and they were on our email list. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big thing is you have 30 days to really prove that you're a good product for Amazon. So that honeymoon period, we say don't launch until your listing is absolutely perfect. Your inventory is in Amazon and ready to go. And then you start running ads, sending emails to your own database. Like you can, you can do a promo. You're not asking for a review, but you really want to jumpstart those sales. You can do the Vine program to get reviews, things like that. And so speaking more generally about the absolute don'ts, so when I say absolute don'ts of Amazon, what are some of the first things that come to mind for you? Well, first thing is don't sell on Amazon unless you know your number. Do you know how much the fees are? Can you be profitable, right? Mm. We've seen so many businesses. I said, you do. You would actually have to do less and you would make more money if you stopped selling on Amazon. That's the first thing. Um, absolute don't, don't. Don't do any of that review manipulation. Don't do any black hat tactics like like that, that will definitely get you shut down. Um, know what words you can and can't use. Right now, um, supplements and even clothing that claims antimicrobial, antibacterial, 
couple of years ago, Amazon got sued by the EPA uh, here in the US. So some of our brands that were even clothing had to take this pesticide test. So make sure you have your documentation before you, you know, and make sure you know what words you can and can't say. So there's two different EPA documentation that you'll need either for supplements or for anything that says antibacterial, antimicrobial. So that'll get you shut down too. (laughs) And I'm interested to know, you touched on first party data right at the beginning of the episode. And so I'm thinking about, you know, you launch a business and or brand on Amazon, it must be difficult to make the decision then to grow outside the platform or to move away from Amazon, if that's at all possible, because I imagine it becomes very addictive to sell on Amazon and then people become very fearful to then move away from Amazon because that's become their livelihoods. So aside from maybe first party data, which is a big and maybe obvious one, are there any other commitments that you make to Amazon or you make to yourself when launching a business on Amazon that become very difficult to remove yourself from? Yes. So I think part of that, so I'm talking specifically what I call 2P and 3P, where you're on seller central versus vendor central. Mm -hmm. If you're on vendor central, we try and get people off of vendor central. That's selling direct to Amazon. Um, not only do you give them wholesale, then you've got to give them 12% co-marketing and they they forget to order your product and it runs out of stock. So we really don't like Vendor Central at all. Um, we really let, prefer the 2P, 3P selling on Seller Central. But in terms of what else should you, you know, what else should you be aware of or avoid and what's hard to unwind is, you know, people get addicted to subscribe and save. So the nice right. thing is, we had some brands who were doing over 100% conversion, right? Because people weren't, they didn't even need to come back to Amazon. They would just get their shipment every month. So our conversion rate was over 100%. Say 10,000 people would come to the page, but you know we'd have 15,000 products shipped. So it's really hard to sort of unwind that because those are all your guaranteed sales. If you say, yeah, I want to move off Amazon. Uh, one of our brands did that and they said, we're going to, stop doing seller central. We're going to give it to our, um, this third party wholesaler. We don't want to do it anymore. And they lost all of their subscribers, Mm. their revenue tanked. Um, you know, they're not in a great place. And so the subscribe and save is something that's really hard to unwind to go Mm. back and get all those subscribers. There's a great coffee company that is largely D to C and Amazon only. And they, what they do is they offer a better subscription on their website than they do on Amazon. So Amazon might be 5% or 10% and they'll offer 12% on their own website. It's hard to unwind the people that already are familiar with you and used to buying on Amazon. And Actually, that's a really interesting topic is that when you move away from Amazon, I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you can enlighten me if you've had experience of this, but are there any ways of accessing that subscriber or customer data when you move from Amazon to another platform or when you decide to build your brand outside of Amazon that don't violate their terms of service? I've seen some interesting, that's a really good question. Um, if you fulfill yourself, you do get all the customer data, but you know the terms of service is you're not going to use them. You're not going to add them yeah. to your database. You're only going to use it for fulfillment. Um, there's a, uh, a running energy you know, powder packet that I've used that I like. And I ordered these on Amazon and and this is kind of gray hat in the, in the package. 
there was a QR code. It says, sign up for our emails and we'll send you three free packets. So now they have my first party data. Mm, interesting. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm just interested in that transition because I know that's one of the one of the primary difficulties for businesses that are built on Amazon and then eventually want to grow and build that first party data outside of Amazon. So that's a really interesting example. But I think the key message that I'm getting there is it's difficult. It's not easy, <laughs> and um, and even though there might be loopholes in the terms of service, it's certainly a gray area. Is that correct? Right. It, like, and there's plenty of folks that do it, but. They, their legal team is probably much bigger than, you know, a 50 or $100 million brand's legal team. So yeah. um, we, we try to, we do not, we don't try, we do, we don't do anything that would violate terms of service. It's just not worth it. When you receive a suspension on Amazon for any reason, it can be difficult sometimes to overcome that suspension. And I guess that's one of the key decisions when you're thinking about building a business on Amazon that I assume you might have seen as well, is that if your primary source of revenue becomes Amazon, and then you are suspended on Amazon, on Amazon. Of course, there are professionals like yourself that can help businesses overcome those suspensions. But for as long as you're suspended, you're not making money. And that can be a real pain, particularly for a growing business. Definitely. It is. And that's what we're finding. We have a brand that does, you know, 8 million and on Amazon, and that's 90% of their business. Mm. You know, they said, we don't want to manage a website. We don't want to do this. Well, now they're trying to unwind this because you know, every now and then they'll, they'll get a suspension or something and we'll work through it. But the other thing you lose if you start out on Amazon is Amazon is going to own your organic listings on Google. So someone searches mm. for your brand, Amazon's going to come up first because Google knows, you know, millions of people have clicked through to this link. And now you're, you know, you're buying your own brand terms because you can't rank above Amazon on Google because your website is tiny and it's got a tiny domain authority. And so then you're, you're, you're competing against Amazon for those same customers to try and get them on your brand. So that's why I always love building your brand first and then maybe going to Amazon. And also it's pretty expensive for new brands. You know, you've got to pay to play on the advertising side. And actually just closing out the episode, both um, you mentioned organic search, but when I reference organic here, I'm talking about organic Amazon listings. So I'm just breaking down some of the absolute don'ts in terms of organic listings on Amazon and then paid advertising on Amazon. So what comes to mind for you first, just in terms of organic listings, you're building out your listing what things should you avoid? What practices should you avoid? A couple things. So when you're building out your organic, I see this all the time. The backend keywords field, you have 250 characters, right? And I see people repeating things all the time. Well, each word gets indexed. So no commas, just spaces, no punctuation, just words not repeated. So we use like, you know, there's simple ones on the web that are like, HTML like character counters, you have 250. The other thing most people don't know is if you use more than 250, they skip the field. So make sure you don't use more than 250 character. It's actually 250 bytes, but for the US English, it's 200, typically 250 characters is 250 bytes. So we see that all the time. We see lousy backend keywords. We also see keywords trying to keyword stuff in the listings. So the listings don't read like a person would actually read. Um, we also see people not, a lot of times it's not using things like not using the A plus content, not getting brand registered. Um, so they can do those additional features. The other thing we see a lot is people putting features in there at Dell. We used to call it speeds and feeds. Um, but not really talking about benefits. So one of our greatest hacks is that 
we'll go and read all the reviews on our client's product as well as competing products. And we'll find what those pain points are. And we have a tool that scrapes all the reviews. So it pulls out themes and words and, and things that people... So we look at what people really don't like about that. So I would say take the time, do the research. Don't just put what you think people are going to want, but actually find what the pain points are. And if you read through reviews or you use a tool to scrape reviews, that will tell you what those pain points are. Amazing. And then finally, just that same question, but applied to paid advertising. Is there anything that you see that you tear your hair out when you see it? Yeah, there's so many things on the paid side, but I will tell you, um, the, the auto ads, we see this all the time. Oh, it, it breaks my heart, Scott. Um, it really does. When, when people just turn on an auto campaign and Amazon spends your money like crazy. Right. So there's in an auto campaign, there's four different things available. There's, Close match mean it if it's a search term or uh, another product, it's it's a close match to yours. There's loose match, there's substitutions, and there's compliments. And a lot of times people just turn on this auto campaign. I just did this with this women's wellness brand I'm advising. And they leave it on and Amazon, next thing you know, Amazon has spent like $5,000 and you've got two sales. So that's my biggest thing. So go in and then mine those keywords, constantly uh, mine those keywords. So we pulled out three keywords for her. And now she she went from like a 0.5 ROAS to a 12 ROAS oh. on her ads. I just I just turned off a couple things for her and pulled out the three converting keywords, put them in their own manual campaign. And now she went from a 0.5 ROAS to a 12 ROAS on her ads. I know we're coming towards the end of our time together right now. So um, for now, I'm just going to say, Carolyn, it's been really interesting to explore the do's and don'ts. I've certainly learned a lot in this episode. So I'm sure our listeners have too. A reminder for anyone listening that if you enjoyed these kind of topics that we talked about today, I know we've spoken a lot about Amazon, but the book is Business Growth, Do's and Absolute Don'ts. And you'll find a lot of the themes that we've discussed today shared or explored beyond Amazon. Uh, So go check the book out. And then Carolyn, before I let you go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you? If they want to extend the conversation and reach out to you and ROI Swift, where can I find you? Sure. Thanks, Scott. You can find our lousy little website at roiswift.com. We spend all our time working on all of our clients. But um, yes, you can find us on the web at roiswift.com. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And then, of course, the book just came out on Amazon last month. So I only have 11 reviews on my book. So I'm trying to get to those 25. So, But I've really enjoyed being here, Scott. And thanks very much for the opportunity. Brilliant. Take care, everyone. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.